This is Illegitimate Scholar, a weekly cultural anthropology interview podcast. Yeah, we're the good old boys of the good old boys podcast, good old boys with a Z on Patreon. We do weekly live shows. We like to talk about politics, what's going on in the news, but we also like to dip our toes into usually history, but when we're talking to the ill scholar here, we'll get into stuff like uh, the, the history of the, of the planet and societies and cultures and biology. Yeah, we also um, are reviewing every single episode of the X Files. I'm, <laughs> I'm bogged I forgot about that, dude. That's Merrick. Uh, Goodoldboys.com, Patreon.com, slash Goodoldboys, and uh, WVSApparel.com has their merch. WVSApparel.com. Yeah. So yeah, um, and patronage, right, guys? That's the that's that's the 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 pillar of the show, the theme of the show. Uh, it's just kind of um adapted um, thing off of Select Theory by Bruce Bueno de Mesquita. Uh, it's something we talk about a lot. Is, is, uh, it's a model of understanding politics where you see patronage as the, the, the fundamental building block of all politics. That's the uh, theme of the show. If you want to hear somebody talk about patronage, uh, check us out because that's all we talk about. Yeah, it's not and always it's, and it's an amazing theory, honestly. And I, I talk about it a lot, sometimes on the show and also on Twitter. Um, I know I tag you probably three or four times a week, Bog Beef, when I see something perfect for patronage. Yeah, I mean, uh, <clears throat> it, 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 it's 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 a huge, huge topic. Uh, I, I it is kind of shocking when you first hear, it, but I, I don't think it's that crazy for there to be some kind of fundamental building block of human organization like that. Uh, yeah. It's That's not good. crazy because if you, if you ask, some people will complain and it's too simplistic, but if you ask them the basic idea, they'll agree. Oh yeah, that's this obvious, but it, it's really not obvious to people anymore. I don't, it, I don't think people understand that it's there under the surface of everything. It's kind of like, uh, you know, all food at some point comes down to calories. That does not mean that the only thing there is to discuss about, uh, you know, the difference between gutter oil and, uh, uh, you know, in a, in a seven course at French meal, uh, is the calories, but, uh, everything still does come down to calories. Yeah. A hundred percent. And, and like, it's the patron client relationship, right? And that, and that comes from the Romans. Well, it's, I mean, it, it's, it's probably, I mean, the word. Oh, uh, it must, it must, but yeah, like the, 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 the people who uh, made this model, yeah, it, it has to, because the, the people who use this model explicitly, like, uh, was, was the Romans. Yeah. Yeah. Like to the patron, uh, patrician, right. Patron, patrician, patrician pleb relationship. And, and this was like, uh, this, this is so perfect for cultural anthropology because it's like, it's, um, it's it's behavioral economics in a certain way because it's about the incentives between people and uh reciprocity but to me when i when i look at confucianism like confucianism uh when confucius was asked what he thought the one word to explain human relationships are it was reciprocity and patron systems are reciprocity and and so when you have like a band level at a band level, there is, and this is like below a tribe where it's very, very primitive humans. Um, there's a 
there's a relationship, uh, there's a relationship of reciprocity that's kind of not, there are social rules that govern it. But once you get up to these higher chiefdom levels with new technology into the state level and you come to societies that eventually become global, then they become much more complicated. But to me, the, the patron relationship is just governed entirely by more complex rules as the um, as it grows larger. And that's where you get systems like the technocracy. Well, the, the question you asked, I mean, this is an illustrative example here. The question you asked earlier, like where the word, it, it, does, it does come from Latin. Patron means father. It means daddy. It's like you, you're, you're paid, you're paid. And it is a two, but it is a two way relationship. That's the thing that people get confused that you have, you have obligations to your patron, but he also has obligations to his client. Sometimes protection, sometimes money. As for the client's uh, obligations to the patron, it could be in, in our system. Unfortunately, sometimes it means you're going to pull a lever and vote for somebody. You're going to, give your free labor to organize political campaigns, whatever. Or if you're, if, if Vito Corleone is your patron, it might mean you, he has to ask a favor of you someday and you have to say yes, because he did you one and he did a favor yeah. of you in the past. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting. Cause, uh, you know, there are, uh, when you're talking about sort of the way things work at a base level, you can sort of think of things as like a uh, an instinctual kind of thing, like, oh, well, I'm nice to this person, they're nice to me. But that stuff doesn't really fly anymore once you start getting civilization. Once you have things like lawyers and and laws and stuff like that, uh, this is where this is where all the uh, things that are non intuitive comes from. And uh, also, having a model can just help keep you honest. Uh, it, it can get you can get lost when just when you're um i i find a lot of the, the strongest thinkers in everything uh even politics they they may have a different mo like a lot of times the actual model is not the most important thing in the world it's kind of what you can do with it and you using it as a base there are definitely people who do who think of politics in completely different terms uh like i've heard a good argument for uh people who think of politics in terms of uh uh the availability and price of energy and like you, you can, you can really understand things a lot just by going off of that and using that as a base, but it helps you keep you honest because otherwise, I mean, we would just all tell ourselves what we want to hear all the time. I mean, uh, you know, well, there's also an aspect of like, when you're talking about the modern political system, there are layers of abstraction and it kind of, I don't know, camouflages stuff, but you know, in theory, because people have been talking a lot lately about the rule of law, right? In theory, the rule of law, if it was actually, if, if, if things actually work that way, would, I guess, I don't say, wouldn't say negate patronage, but it would make it a lot less of an influence in your life. Like in theory, the idea behind the rule of law is, well, you don't need to get somebody to protect you because you know, the legal system will treat everybody, everybody fairly. We'll be on it. I'll be on an even level. So you won't need somebody there you know, to keep your enemies from destroying you. Now right. in practice, that's, bureaucracy. yeah, in practice, right. in, that's, in larger. Yeah. yeah, in practice, that's never been true. But if you, I mean, if you look at life in the 20th century, I, in, uh, sorry, the late 20th century, like America, I mean, it was kind of true. It, it, you really didn't have to worry. You don't have to worry about the things that you have to worry about and say, like Mexico, where when you're dealing with like, gov like government authorities or <laughs> God forbid, 
non-governmental authorities like cartels. It's entirely a patron-client relationship. And if you don't have a patient, if you don't have a dad, you're in you're in deep trouble. Like you could die. Right. Right. And that's like, and, and this works on a state level too, right? You have like a, a vassal state versus a, mm-hmm. um, versus something else. And, and those themselves come out of much more literal state level patron relationships between um, individuals and, and their individual ownerships from knights to, to lesser nobles to higher nobles. And that, that governed most of Europe for a long time. And uh, most of, China for a long time as well. I'm sorry, most of uh, Japan had that. Uh, China also had a a state level system where they were considered. I mean, they literally called themselves the Middle Kingdom, and they had a tributary system with the states around them that recognized them as the authority. Um, and that that comes with it protection, but also um, obligations. Yeah, yeah. I, you could. I don't know. I don't know enough about China, so I'll ask you this question. Maybe you do. Could you say that what happened into China in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, when you had like the warlord era, that was a breakdown of that bureaucratic system, and then, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, reversion to a system where, yeah, you have a big, you have a big man. He's got the most guns. He's got the most men. He gets to dictate what happens in this geographic region. So there was a bit of an atrophying and old age of the bureaucratic system of the Qing dynasty, I think, into the 19th century. They had like these things called banner armies, which were essentially vassal armies of different people. But um, it didn't become a huge problem. Um, Like the banner armies kind of stopped functioning. Um, It didn't become a huge problem until the British showed up. That was a huge destabilizing force. Um, Up until then, they were doing okay, But in in the face of the British um, coming in, and showing the weakness of the Chinese as like the really not being able to do anything that that was an opportunity for for lesser um, uh, yeah the warlords the lesser warlords to exert more control and autonomy over the emperor. I think um, a, a good sort of event to like why why is this stuff important like why not just discuss things like the law or something like that which are also important in politics right um i I think like a a good thing to think of especially if you're conservative uh there's this moment that happens for like a a huge amount of young conservatives where uh the topic of something is brought up and you feel honestly um like oh well the Democrats could never do that. That's that's out, that's explicitly outlawed in the Constitution. Well, the Constitution says they can't do that. I, let, let's not worry about that. Let's talk about you know the 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 tax rate or something like that. And um, you know, someone goes, uh, yeah, you know, that doesn't really matter, man. And the, the, there there is a huge denial. Like I, I think every young conservative has this moment where you're in denial about this, and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What, what, what do you mean the Constitution doesn't matter? What are you talking about? Um, and then you start, you know, you kind of go through the hit list of, uh, of this paper. It's, it's not like it doesn't mean anything. It it is, it is something that is used in courts or whatever, but it's not what you thought it was. It was not, um, this, this, uh, uh, this money back guarantee. And now as soon as you think about that, things like that, uh, you realize there's another layer to politics that 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 hasn't been. It doesn't mean like the, the whole world's ending or something. It just means, hey, there's another layer of how people organize themselves other than 
oh, there's this law written somewhere. Oh, there's this piece of paper somewhere. Uh, like, the you know, human government and stuff, it, it, it's much more complicated than that. Yeah, and, and I mean, you could, if, this is the problem with talking, when, when you start digging down deep into the meaning of an idea like patronage, it's like so simple and elemental. Like you, you can, you can go too far, uh, deconstructing anything but like you you could make the argument that the rule of law as we know it is kind of a patronage scheme in itself this is like this is a something that the powerful people like powerful people your patrons they're going to here are the rules that we're going to give you so that you can have a regular life and you don't have to worry about somebody shooting you and taking your stuff these are rules this is my gift to you in exchange you're going to give me depending on where you live between like 20 and 45% of your, of, of your income. Like that's what yeah. I'm going to get in exchange for keeping the peace. And the, and the de- definition of the peace is here are these rules that everybody has to abide by, which is like, that is, uh, people have talked about this recently. It recently came up, I think worthy house. And if it wasn't him, I apologize. Like, you know, this, the idea of the rule of law, everybody playing by the same rules. That's not, a uh, uh like an, uh, a natural thing for human beings. It's, it's really kind of runs counter to how we usually operate. No. Yeah. So one of you said something earlier where you were talking about the difference between like a non-governmental organization and in the context mm-hmm. of Mexico, of course, it's better to, to to come to to odds with the Mexican government than the cartel, I think in most cases, but like at a certain level, they're, they're both like, I know I, I hammer in social construct all the time, but they're both, social constructs and thinking about them differently as cartels versus governments is like, yes, there are differences between them, but one of those differences is just the legitimacy of the organization. And especially yeah. with cartels, yes. they're at the level they have, like they have air forces and, and submarines and like RPGs and incredible weapons um, and like important people on their payrolls. And like when I, think about that and then i think about where like the rule of law comes from it really does come from a ritualization of uh the plunder of a people that's what it was originally for most of human history we're we're dealing with like conquerors of different people that that usually insert themselves as an aristocracy above another people it it was an assumed relationship that the majority of human population was uh peasants or serfs or underlings and and other people weren't and um in in the original like how this was originally was that the plunder would be in the form of, of women and your lives and whatever, because you you've lost and that's who wins the monopoly on violence and and having bureaucracy over time just ritualizes and standardizes um, that conquest over people. And I, I don't think people realize that most of us, our DNA or whatever, like over time we went from conquered people into just our, our forefathers, they, they, fought for rights over time or they didn't and things change with technology but you know you go far back enough we're all pretty much conquered people besides a select few we used to talk about this all the time um the there was this uh there was this era of early um uh vice tv (laughs) where they would um They, they used to they, they they did the best thing in the world they would give somebody a camera and a bunch of money and send them out to see crazy things that sort of people had talked about people had memed about uh you know like if there was a new un report that said like uh south sudan is the most dangerous place in the world they would give a guy 
you know, some money and a camera and say, go, 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 go check that out. People want to hear about it. They just saw this viral uh, article about the most dangerous place world. Let's see it. Uh, and they would go to these places. What you'd find is you'd, you'd, you'd have all these, 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 uh, uh, these primitive, um, uh, patron client governments or whatever. And once you quickly realize this is, this is included in Bruce Banner and Mosquito's writings, whatever, is that, uh, there's, there's very, there's no functional difference in between, uh, a, a, a mafia and a government. I mean, they, they're all the same thing. This is, I mean, this is where, uh, there's a lot of people, you, you hear this, there's this sort of naive comment that you'll hear people say a lot. They're like, did you know that Al Qaeda, like, builds hospitals and gives money out to people and stuff and so yeah they do yeah they do they, they all these things they they're all the same kind of thing you're all in the same uh, a similar business some of them are are kind of private shadows some of them only operate at certain edges like you could have a you you could have within the same territory you could have multiple governments like you could in new york city you could have a a uh, the explicit the 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 uh, the government that issues passports the, that everyone knows about and the, the criminal underworld could be could be covered by this mafia then you could have sort of imminent immigrant groups that are that are uh essentially have their own government that is that is kind of secret and they're all in the same business they're uh they have the monopoly on violence etc et the the difference like it is all and the taxing, same and taxing it, yeah it is all the same thing taxes are protection money and i don't mean that in like the I mean, yeah. I do mean it in a libertarian sense, but not like it's, we got to abolish it because like you're, you're one way or the other, you're going to pay protection money to somebody. But the difference between, you know, a cartel and uh, a local government is that the local government has in theory rules for how they can deal with their subjects. What they, they, there are rules for them too, that they're not allowed to, to, to treat you a certain way and not do certain things to you. Obviously a cartel doesn't have this rule. That's the difference between civilization and barb and barbarism it's not that like there's some magic thing that happened that, that transformed you it's just one has rules for how the strong can rule over the subjects and the other right. might not necessarily two quick examples it requires an in sorry bug beef go ahead all right so, uh, sorry two quick examples uh number one um military generals whenever they have conquered some territory or whatever uh, immediately basically become like the president of that area and they rule it and it, there's no like there's no even transition like everyone like literally knows how this works like oh uh napoleon's general just took a uh, uh just conquered spain well he is now basically the just like someone that was elected in office or whatever over there and he knows how to do that and it, every everyone sort of uh uh, uh understands that uh, another example we like to use is um uh so you learn about polit about politics in school in America. You're going to learn about this guy who is supposed to be the worst guy in, in one of the worst people in, in, in the world. Um, who, uh, who's the New York guy? <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, no, <laughs> the, the big fat guy, uh, from New York. Yeah. Boss tweet. Boss tweet. <laughs> All right, and so in, in Boss Tweed, and so you can look at, and they'll tell you that there was a time when Boss Tweed ran New York, not the not the city council, not the mayor, not the United States government, and this is absolutely true. When you would pay your taxes to New York City, uh, literally Boss Tweed would, uh, people would pay their taxes and they would go to the city and 
the treasurer would hand like a giant bag of of money to Boss Tweed, who was supposed to take it to the the bank to deposit this money. And instead, he would take about half of it, and then he would deposit the rest for the the the, the city services. And you could look at that situation, people are like, wow, so that whatever's going on there, that's completely different than than what's going on now. Clearly, everything was just being stolen and it's all gone, right? Well, you, and you could look at what you got out of the New York City government during that time. So uh, Boss Tweed was like every sort of big um, uh, attraction that people go to see in New York City today, the Museum of Modern, Modern Art, all these big museums, uh, the library, uh, the Brooklyn Bridge, all these things were built during uh, Boss Tweed's rulership. So uh now you go to today when there's nothing illegal going on, basically. I mean, people could have little scams and stuff, but everything is legal. It's all legal if that matters to you, but uh, they don't build anything anymore. There's no money left. Everything just gets distributed to this huge class of of uh, bureaucrats and people with like these, these weird social jobs and stuff. And you can take these two situations like, well, how can something... This guy is stealing. That's wrong. That's a sin. He's taking the money from the bag and giving it to his friends versus today. Everyone's following the law. There's no bad people, whatever, but your money is still gone. And in fact, it's being stolen much more efficiently. We just call that. It's just legal. And this is a huge, huge, huge problem for Western societies. The whole rule of law meme. I mean, there is, there was a lot to like about rule of law. Uh, You can see that when, when Caesar when Caesar rolls into France, uh, it's not it's it's not like oh we're the Italians we're here to f up you French guys. No, I mean he, there's a real he's making sort of a similar offer there of like hey uh, what if you had you know uh, uh, what if you had this relationship with 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 the state rather than this local big guy. Uh, you know, you might, we'll, we'll give you a toilet. Uh, you'll, you'll get somewhere to take a bath. You get, you'll get, uh, uh, water, you get some nice roads and stuff. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. The Inca did the same thing. They, they set up food storage wherever they went. They, they set up food things. They, they came in. I mean, like if they weren't doing a decent job, there would be more rebellions whenever that happens. And that's kind of like what the divine right of Kings ends up being. It's, it's just like, if people are, if you go to the most primitive societies, the leaders lead through simply like uh, just by the fact that people will follow them. There's there's a word for it. I'm forgetting what it is, but they they just lead like oh, what was that? I was thinking consensus or something. But <laughs> yeah, I was thinking was a, a more flowery example would be the French word elan. Oh, okay. Uh, this comes up in, in honor cultures and stuff like uh, this. This is why, why people look at those crazy pictures of Louis the Fourteenth and he's wearing those ridiculous uh, outfits and stuff. That's not for no reason at all. There's a reason why. Uh, there's a reason why uh, uh, these people, these kings, these big generals. There's a reason why Patton walked around with pearl handled pistols, and and he looked good and all these kinds of things. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. So I. There's a number of things that I want that you guys may or may not have heard about. So on the Vice TV topic, um, do you guys hear about Channel 5 News, Andrew Callahan going into Philadelphia? And he basically like he he did an interview with these guys and they're the ones who are selling like uh, I think it was like it was some tranquilizer that like debilitates your skin and like fentanyl. And 
apparently there's a turf war between the Mexican cartel and a Chinese corporation in Philadelphia and gang members are like, it's a proxy war where Philadelphia gang members, some of them working for the Chinese, some of them for the cartel <laughs> and they're fighting each other. No. Yeah, that happened. So, so that's a thing. Um, I could definitely see that. So there was this big transition. Uh, so back in the, back in the old days, like going from, uh, you know, like, like a zero AD to like, 1975 uh if you wanted to get hard drugs they had to either uh they were coming on the silk road from either afghanistan or you know later on they had to come from these certain specific places in south america where you could grow stuff doesn't matter what kind of gangster if you're an italian gangster if you are if you're a drug dealer in in africa in china in in over over the road, you must be connected to these networks in these two places. Uh, and uh, once you, there was a massive revolution when the Silk Road website came out. This, which was a completely different, uh, the 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 dark web or whatever. You had guys. I mean, if you're a guy under forty, if you're an American male under forty, I would imagine many many other nationalities had this sort of uh, uh, thing happen to them where. There were guys from your high school that you know did not have connections. You know that they didn't know anybody that all of a sudden got into the drug game. How they 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 totally overstepped the all every cartel and all those people that used to control the flow of drugs and they just got it mailed to their house from China. You talked it, about this on Twitter, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Bogbeat's a great follow on Twitter as well as the podcast, by the way. That's a, so that's is Marbeck, sorry. Uh, that's a revolutionary thing and you could see that that's that that is also the fentanyl revolution you know if you wanted heroin there is a there is a small patch of land in afghanistan i think there's a couple of the places like turkey and stuff that could the only places that got the poppy not anymore right. not anymore now th that's that's what fentanyl is that's why fentanyl is so different is fentanyl is just uh, uh synthetic and that, that is a revolutionary product yeah and and that's like this is something i talk about a lot i probably talked about with you guys it's by like the way technology real yeah, quick that's like the potato coming out to to countries that have only have rice go ahead right and that's a technology it's a food technology it's it's a it's a new energy source that can be used and it was i mean um and that's why like like colonization one of the tools of colonization is what you use to make a living like importing horses and, and pigs and cows like in the in the 17th century native american wars in new england they were wars of annihilation on both sides uh we just won um but they the, the native americans would would shoot cows full of arrows and part of it was sending a message they would shoot them well after they were dead hundreds of arrows pinned into a cow um like denying them food uh the the other direction was just as bad if not worse because they were more successful um, technology disrupts the social order. Uh, it disrupts the, the existing social order when, when technology changes. So this new technology of the internet and the Silk Road bringing like that brings this new thing where new people can get into the drug trade without these other relationships that you were talking about. Um, and this happens throughout history. I love that. Did you guys ever hear about the time that the Hasidic Jews took over a precinct in New York City? No, uh, like a police precinct? Yes, really? You never heard about this? No, no. Uh. Mm -mm. Yeah, yeah. I feel like this is right up your alley. Um, sorry, bef like 
whatever you guys want to go off of what I said after that, but I thought you would love to see this. I mean, this is a digitized one from 1978. And obviously I don't pay for the New York times cause I'm not a communist. Um, yeah. So it's 70 are hurt, including 62 officers as Hasidim storm a police station. And they, uh, it's from 1978. They, they took over like it fatal stabbing of an elderly Jewish man. Like people will tell you that the Hasidic Jews like run New York, they own New York and they, they are, generally allowed to police their own community insularly just like the amish right so it's like um my buddy told me about this the other day adam nutter i don't know if you guys know who he is he's a libertarian comic and um, we do another show together five till midnight um and he used to be a cop in new york and he told me about this in the precinct it's been 50 years they still call it like they call it something i wish i remembered something jewy or jewish <laughs> But that's the overlapping freaking governments in the same area that that basically it's essentially a jurisdictional fight, just like the thing happening in Texas right now, a jurisdictional fight between different governments, because like we think about the state and federal governments as part of the same, but they're distinct entities and they vie for and when their incentives are in line, the, the, the members who are part of that organization, their incentives are in line with the organization if they benefit from the organization expanding in power. And I think that's why we see it. Um, the the patronage uh one of the 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 big uh uh pillars of patronage that sort of uh helps illustrate this and uh fixes a lot of uh, incorrect thinking is it's very simple it's just no one rules alone no one rules alone when I, when people think about like oh there's some african dictator or whatever they think like basically everybody in that country over there just listens to this guy because uh he's the most evil or whatever no 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 no, no. it's never like that it's never like that no one rules alone Mm -hmm. yeah they've all got lieutenants and whatever it's like a whole feudal breakdown it's like uh even even at one of the most basic like big men um i probably talked to you guys about this before onga's big mocha but it's like horticulturalist um pig her pig farmers on papua new guinea there's like this famous documentary from the 70s um and he's a big man he's got he's got like four wives his wives are like an economic asset they each have their own house they take care of pigs they look miserable it <laughs> looks like it sucks um, but he, and, and he has lesser big men who are like other dudes who like, they have some wealth, but not as much as him. And it's a redistribution ceremony in their culture where like, he's gets so many pigs, he throws a big mocha. It's just a party. And there's like, and he's throwing the biggest mocha ever. Um, and I'm sure that having a Western camera crew following him around helps with his status quite a bit, um, as well, but he throws the biggest party ever. Cause all these other, all these other lesser big men they give pigs to him and they're there at his party and their legitimacy is increased just like ongas who is shown to be the best um because it benefits them as well as benefiting him that they're below him if you're a if you live in a third world country uh it is not a a terrible idea to make the leader of your country uh whoever the just who whichever person is the best that uh uh scamming money out of first world countries in aid it, it, it's not a bad idea there's a lot of countries to do that and that's like if there isn't an effective bureaucracy and there isn't there isn't going to be an effective bureaucracy without the culture of an effective bureaucracy which means that people have to be committed to it um then that th that's the only way it's going to work um sorry i lost my train of thought um yeah, it's it, it, it's because like this is why you can't input 
a uh, Western form of govern over, uh, government over Afghanistan. They have no culture of that happening. It, it didn't spring up naturally. They have their own versions of um, of governing themselves, and, and they don't want to have it impo- imposed on them. I mean, it's the same thing as, as Reconstruction in a lot of ways. And after Reconstruction ends, you see a lot of reversion back to the... Um, in Birmingham, yeah. they love the governor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, do you guys, have you guys thought about that with the Civil War at all? Merrick? Yeah, you mean the, after the, after the end of the occupation in the South, the, again, I say a reversion to the old political arrangements. After the Look. failure of the North to, to continue <laughs> their, their occupation. Careful, careful. We're out, we're, we're, it's just an away game. No, no, it's not. No, please. No, it, it's, it's, um, yeah, this is, uh, you're well, a very friendly territory. Well, speaking I'm of an history, extraordinarily conservative audience, guys. Uh, speaking of um, history, I mean, have you noticed there's this thing that we've been playing with a little bit lately? Um, so, uh, the libs have, have, there's like on the cutting edge of like, uh, 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 academic, uh, ac- the academic left, they're, they're, they're doing this new, uh, thing with uh with the the reconstruction where they say that um reconstruction failed uh because (laughs) and because they're they're, they're like you know reconstruction ended it failed because of um like basically kind of guerrilla war type things in the south which is not wrong it's that's not not incorrect uh, but the, I mean, they're 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 basically doing this just for just to have this sort of specific, uh, um, uh, emotional thing about like like it's because we didn't get kill all the clan guys and stuff like that. Let's well, go but, ahead. But but they but and I always like to, to I'm trying to like cheer this on in, in a way of like good okay put that in the history book tell them that you tried to occupy the South. And groups like the Klan and all these sort of veteran groups and stuff mended uh, it, and but they don't want to do that either. But it's very fun. But the, the, the more interesting thing about it is like, um, the, it's clear that like we're not even talking about history anymore. We're just talking about like what is the best movie version to give to children to give them the right emotional effect from history class. It is so bizarre. Well, let's frame this in terms of the home cooking, right? This is that. So what happened after the civil war ended, you had a military occupation of a third of the country of the South. And what was the goal? The goal for Republicans was let us go sweep in here and replace all of the existing relationships between people, not just government or military, whatever, but like commercial social let's, change all these these paid we're going to give all these clients new patrons and more importantly we're going to we're going to be the only available patron for this new group that we've created freedmen's like we're going to take control over all these old relationships and you know you're going to do it at bayonet point you're going to do some of it with with ballots you're going to do it with with expanded federal bureaucracies like we we've noted before on our podcast you know the justice department didn't exist before reconstruction it was explicitly created for for the purposes of reconstruction to to take people away from the south to try them on federal charges in in the north or in washington dc but either way that that was it was working in the sense that 
there were several states where they like if you look at the 1870 uh was it 72 yeah 1872 election a lot of the state southern states couldn't vote because they were still occupied under military governments you had republican governments that had been set up by the military that still existed with fusion tickets and maybe there was hanky panky at the ballot box or whatever but the important thing is the idea was we're going to replace the what used to be a democratic patronage system and, and it was explicitly a patriot spoil system it was this is like they didn't even deny it back then and we're going to make this our own the problem with this always is like the the enemy like in warfare the enemy has a vote right and you can't set up those networks this is why like if you want to say tomorrow we're going to go fix mexico we're going to we're going to set up a, a good government in mexico but you can't do that because the cartels just f and kill your 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 people they'll kill people in the voting lines they'll kill people who are trying to give out money they'll steal it they'll set up their own un, like under not literally underground but underground networks and you can't do anything about that unless you have military supremacy like that's the real story of reconstruction they lost the ability to operate in the south because there were enough people who didn't like what they were doing that they would physically it would be physically dangerous to be a Republican in a lot of these places. And oh yeah, they, when we learn, when we're all around the same age, we're a little bit older than you, but when we learned this in the history books, it was like, well, what happened was there was reconstruction, but it didn't really work out. And the, the North didn't have the political will and the 1876 election happened. So they just kind of gave up on it. But like, that's not true. That's never true. Nobody ever just gives up on taking complete political power. You yeah, run into a, you run into a hard limit of how far you can expand, and like that's the, and ironically, usually when you hit that limit, and then your your empire, your whatever, has to collapse back into a, I won't say simpler, but like I guess more streamlined form. A lot of times you go back to these direct relationships between, you know, the patron and client, which is why this, this which is why this is so important to think about in the first place. Yeah. And and there's okay. So one of the things I've been talking about a lot recently is a concept called uh, diffusion. So cultural diffusion. There, there's a few different ways on on how um, it's been defined in in anthropology on on how culture can spread. And one of them is hierarchical diffusion. And I think that hierarchical diffusion is extraordinarily powerful because it, it, it's the idea that there's a hierarchy of people, and the people at the top of the hierarchy, their culture spreads down. So you have something like it can be as simple as like a game like golf being associated with the upper class. Um, and uh, people will copy what uh, rich people at the top of hierarchies are doing. And, and there's a natural incentive for you to do that. So of course they, they try to replace the system of government by, by maybe if most people don't believe it, they put people in the right positions of power um, through simple incentives of providing people with something that the right people are in the positions of power uh, based on that hierarchy. So they can spread uh, naturally the beliefs and uh, the actions that they want from people based on those positions being available to people if they, you know, toe the line. And th the same thing happens in academia today. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So like, it, it didn't work because they it, it yeah it didn't work for a number of reasons obviously but like 
it, that was their attempt. Their attempt was to like over time have the right people in the right positions that people just uh, fall in line. Um, uh, you said for obvious reasons. What? 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 what like why? Wait. Well, when did I say for obvious reasons? You said it didn't work for obvious reasons. Oh, for I did I say obvious? I think I meant um for multiple reasons. Like um, like oh, it. It's because it's a foreign structure being imposed ultimately on a people that it wasn't native to. Like, like that's what war is. It's instilling your will on your enemy. And your oh. enemy probably shouldn't be people that you're considered your own countrymen. But th that is what it is. And that is what um, that is what like instilling a government over someone else is. This is um, a this is a great point. You OK, I, I follow you now. Like, well, let's get spicy. There have been people. There are a lot of people who say that. We're, we're all Americans that like to say the American model of government, the liberal democracy, blah, 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 whatever. This is not something that is actually universal to people. It's something that appeals to a very specific group of people. And outside that group of people, it, well, it doesn't really catch on so well. And like we, we've kind of seen this in our adventures in the Middle East, right? They're not super interested in, in doing things this way. It works better in Iraq than it does in Afghanistan, and that's for clear reasons of the history of those countries. Iraq has a has a history of state based government, whereas Afghanistan, a large part of it, does not. Well, what the spicy part I'm getting at here is, could the argument be made, and I'll, I'll leave wiggle room so nobody gets in trouble, that if you have, like, say, a not like so there are systems that are novel and systems that aren't novel, like for. Like, Right before, you know, a military leader coming into a region and setting himself up as, as the king and then making his generals, his vassals, that's a very common, almost pretty much universal system. I think everybody on the planet has experienced that at one point or another. It's like it's like the next step from people being in tribes, feudalism one way or the other, not capital F feudalism, but like this is something that everybody does. But like liberal democracy maybe doesn't work that way. And if, for example, you have a country of people who are like English settlers and they filled the country up with people who weren't English, liberal democracy could be impossible because you now have you now have a country full of people who don't they don't even like liberal democracy. It's not what they that's not how that's not how they roll. That is nothing, it's not in their wheelhouse. And by doing that, you have destroyed the uh i guess the the what the original design of your nation was supposed to be right right and it, and it is an imposition but that imposition doesn't necessarily just have to be forced i mean it was forced a lot of the time and and this is like you know we're talking about the civil war we haven't talked about slavery but like yeah so slavery was the system but like another thing that is also a very bad thing is like genocidal colonialism which is what the united states was practicing at that time and and you know this is this is what i believe happened but this is also like the way that it's phrased by um by you know the the woke college kids so if your argument is that like the south's method of um of governance is uh is is like it justifies them being invaded just because of their method of governance. I, I mean, I would argue that it doesn't the, the genocide of the native Americans justify the same thing. And um, it, it's true that there's other examples in history of like the ideology of, of framing a uh, something as a moral problem and changing your ideology to say that uh, this is not an acceptable action. We're going to do something else. 
um, it, it's usually something that benefits a, a culture a lot. Like the British Empire, they end slavery, but they end slavery because it was already going out in their in, in their culture. So then they make this moral paradigm shift where they're like, OK, we're going to listen to the abolitionists. We're going to uplift their perspective so that people believe that slavery is wrong, which I mean, it is. I think it's wrong, but they're going to they're going to uh, we're going to make slavery illegal. And then they explicitly use slavery as the justification to conquer uh, places in West Africa and to privateer against um, Spanish vessels. And, and they, and, and they put in these systems of government that these same left-wing people think are exploitative and the worst things ever and, and justify like, and, and they're just evil men and we have to take down their statues. But like, those are the people who are ending slavery. And yes, they were imposing this, this new order. Um, so it's always tied in with like, spreading your own system of governance your your own system of, of culture and and that's how these um belief systems and uh socially constructed like east india company organizations that's that's how they spread out you see uh, this you see this all uh, this pattern is all over the place i mean and it depends on how far you would you want to stretch it so i mean like uh you could take a look at uh so you can take a look at Caesar's conquest of Gaul, uh, or you know th this was this was justified out of out of self defense, which that's something we'll see that we'll see that a lot. And uh, was that really justified? I mean, it had been hundreds of years since the Gauls had raided had raided uh, uh, Rome or whatever. That that, that kind of gets dice here. Now you go to sort of uh, to go to slavery. Um, I mean, this is something that, uh, I mean, it would not be, this isn't controversial in small settings with people of, uh, a decent intelligence, even super leftist or whatever, but, uh, everyone knew slavery was on its last legs in America, just like it was elsewhere. It was going to go away by, it was going to go away on its own anyways, uh, it, it, as time went on. And basically, they were just they were. It was gonna likely happen, like it happened in England or whatever. People, uh, there would be some kind of fund or whatever. People would be paid some amount of money, and they just wanted. Um, uh, it, it, it had naturally it had went away, and it was likely to go away with some form of uh, you know industrialization. These kinds of things going that wasn't in question. There was a lot of. Then you have people. There was a lot of uh, uh, sort of. Uh, people with the same minds, the conquest mindset up North that were like, oh, yeah, it's going away, but, um, uh, we can use that to go F people up. And now you like, take that as a huge example. You don't have to take my word for it over. Let's look at sort of, um, what these, we'll take a look at something like, um, you go look at like any kind of uh, activist that that is any sort of activist that is sort of uh like uh uh involved with like families and stuff like that there's there's something you'll see a lot i don't know what her name is but she's like uh uh you know she's an activist to end uh the uh what do you call the the family structure for northwest european the nuclear family the nuclear family she's like so i had this political project this crazy political project and these books and a foundation and um and if these people donate me money i'm going to i'm going to do something about this this uh, uh uh this nuclear family everyone knows that you know all these when you when you when you drive down michigan avenue and you see all these white picket fences and everyone has their golden retriever outside and their and their station wagon and th this thing this reality which we live in which by the way 
they're describing a reality from a long time ago. If you look at any kind of statistics, the family's already toast. It's already toast. It's going away. It's going away anyways. Uh, however, this is sort of a justification. And if it's something that's already happening, oh, it makes the justification way, way easier. If you say, I want money to stop a hustle that's going on right now, like, uh, oh, we're going to start a foundation to stop the United States from uh, running all kinds of uh, uh, weird business scams in, in Eastern Europe or the Middle East. No one's going to give you any money. Uh, you're going to get arrested or something like that. Uh, this is just something that happens a lot. Things that are sort of already in motion uh, become a good justification for conquest. Because the the, the whole uh, there's a lot of reasons for it, but uh, uh, yeah. Things already in motion. Things already in motion become a good recipe for conquest. And it's also like, you, you know, you, you have... Of, of course, the, the states are individual entities. I, I think anybody who went to high school history in the United States, like, has heard the term of like, or or the phrase like, that it went from being the United States was to the United States are. And, and the, like, right now we're seeing in, in the Texas border, there's a power structure, structure uh, a power struggle between the federal government and the state governments. And, you know, this was really, really, this was decided in this war in a lot of ways. And I think this is a big part of why they, the, the people in charge, the federal department of education have a huge incentive to uh, really, really hammer in the point of slavery because it's, it's that the States, the, um, the States having individual, th their own individual autonomy, like the federal government wants to take that autonomy away. Like every organization wants to fight or other organizations for, for control. It just happens naturally because of the incentives towards the people in those organizations to, uh, to expand the authority of it. Um, so not only was it the federal government, but also these, these individual States that were in the North, they, they did policies, especially under uh, reconstruction when there were States still under military occupation, they, they weren't being allowed to vote. So they they use that as an opportunity to enrich themselves at the expense of the South. And this is um, and this is demonstrated in in, you know, any number of numbers. There's no metric. There's there's a bunch of different policies they put in place, including um, the obvious, which was like pensions to American military veterans. But it was it was uh, preferential tariffs, which was a, another issue between some of those southern states. And it also showed that, yes, the federal government, if they wanted to, because the union is not the union. The union is the United States. Calling it the union is just a measure of making it separate, like the country didn't attack itself. But th this is where the, the federal government becomes, uh, you know, more of, an, of a leviathan and, and more of a expanding force that that takes power away from the states uh, at, at their expense. And the South was treated the same way that uh, third world countries were treated uh, throughout the, the 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 later periods. I mean, even up into like what the fifties or whatever. Uh, if if I wanted to produce goods in Montgomery, Alabama, and sell them in New York City, uh, you know, it, it would cost you know it would cost like three dollars in postage to send that to New York City, whereas New York City could send could send uh, uh, things that they produce to Montgomery, Alabama for like 15 cents. Uh, and you, you had, which is, really? that's how, yeah. 
this is what we do all throughout. Uh, we're gonna take we're gonna take your uh, your uh, uh, raw materials and but we don't want any of your finished goods. You can't sell any of your 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 finished goods up here. We don't want that uh, because there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of economic power that comes from that. And they did this just uh, for forever. I mean, this didn't get this didn't get thrown out to like the 1950s. You know what I'm talking about, Merrick? I mean, this is a uh, this is a niche topic. Doesn't come up a lot, but George Wallace sure sure talked about it a lot. Yeah, I don't know the exact numbers, but yeah, this is one of those things that it's, when we start when we start taking deep dives on Wallace, that surprised me that there were still policies from Reconstruction that economic policies from Reconstruction that were well into the 20th century that I'd never heard of. This is especially, I mean, the, for one thing, in Virginia, these things. Virginia is not a cotton state. It's tobacco state, you know, wheat, uh, corn, a lot, lot of corn. It's not a cotton state. Like the cotton states really got effed during and after the Civil War because it get changed. It changed their entire economic structure, and in some ways, they were turning the vassals for a long time because mm-hmm. you know. And we- and we weren't allowed to, we like, it's like, okay, you have to industrialize. Okay, cool. Well, we're going to do that. And then they would stop us from, uh, from doing that, from making any money off, off industrialization. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is intentional and it's, it's, um, and it's, it, it, you can see it obviously like guys, I'm, I'm from Connecticut. I mean, we can look at a graph and see the, the disparities in, in income between our States. It's, it's extraordinarily significant. And it's because like the country was started, um, and it, and it benefited their own areas. I mean, you, you can have the idea that, okay, every Senator represents every American, but in practice, it's just not true. A system is what it does. And, yeah. Um, yeah. What you were saying earlier, you know, the, the stuff that's happening in Texas, if you look at the, I don't say a lot of the normie reaction to it, they, they don't necessarily understand what's going on. And I don't mean that in a, in a mean way, but like uh, it, it's framed. And I mean, it's good if you're, if you're, Greg Abbott, it's good to frame it this way. It's framed as like, well, we're just enforcing the, we're actually enforcing the laws of the United States and the, the president's not doing that. So we're doing it. And that's a good way to frame it because you won't get in, you're, you're less likely to get in trouble. But like, what's really happening is you're having another test of federalism. Like, do we still have federal? Is, is that still actually how the country works? Because in, you know, but going by the law, yeah, the states are autonomous or like, political organizations they're part of the they're part of the federal government but you know constitutionally uh, going by court precedent everything supposedly you're they have the power to rule over themselves on most things but like most of it is is just done by denying funding it's like a yeah yeah and like that's i mean which is huge because you your your state would be screwed if you did it so you would be just diminished over time it would have the same effect because you um, can't say that people in texas don't have to pay federal income tax so they're paying the income tax they're not getting anything back for it so you would be right. being taxed now this they've used this they've used this cudgel on the south specifically in in, in and you know not recent but like the late 20th century and mid 20th century they used that cudgel before and it's worked however there comes a point where that might not work because whatever you're mad about might be worse than the punishment that could be meted out against you. Like this, like the border situation is one of those examples. If you live in Texas, 
you know, the people, people like uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of people crossing, they're not like an abstract thing like they might be to me living in, in Virginia. Like when you're in Texas, you have to deal with this personally every day of your life. Like, like the, the local services, your personal safety, the safety of your loved ones, your schools, everything. You, this directly affects you. So you can reach a point where, okay, I don't care what you're threatening with me with. I want, I want my state government to do something about this. And this is where the conflict comes in. Do we really still have federalism? Because that's an open question. Like the, the Civil War effect ended real federalism. The Abraham Lincoln invaded the southern states and said, "Actually, the pre- the president is in charge of everything. You you're not, you're not what we said we are. These it's not these United States, as George Wallace would say. It's the United States. But they're still like like we are still much more federal than than like almost any European country, most Western countries. These states have a lot of autonomy, but it's." untested and this is one of the situations this is why people get excited and nothing nothing might come from this people might back down it might disappear into the ether and then just another news story in a week or this could be a situation where we're going to find out how much power states really have because in theory greg abbott can direct the (laughs) literal military units that he control to stop the federal government from going in there and removing barbed wire, whatever. He has that power. And at that point, it becomes who are who are those soldiers going to listen to? And like this is really when the rubber meets the road. These are the questions that go way beyond rule of law or your government system or any of the stuff you learn in the civics textbook. It comes down to who do they these people, who the who the National Guard officers, the, the National Guard soldiers the people are in, in that area, who do they think is dad? And if it, if it, if it's Texas and it's Greg Abbott, then you've got a conflict. And if it's Joe Biden, whatever, well, we just continue down the road we're on now. And if federalism is effectively dead, don't worry about I mean, it. I think Texas was a perfect place for this to happen because I think there's even more of a national national spirit there. Yeah. I and mean, they teach Texas history. Yeah. New York, New York City, and Texas are both have this weird thing of uh, this sort of local pride thing uh, that is is more than other places. It's 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 kind of it's kind of peculiar. Like uh, when I lived in Texas, like uh, everything around me. And it's funny because I, I brought I brought all my stuff from Texas, so uh, I still remember. It's like if you if you go buy paper towels at at the grocery store in Texas, they're Texas paper towels. Uh, uh, I kind of like that kind of thing. Uh, New York, New Yorkers are also like this too. They 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 feel like uh, they they have this sort of extra pride. I think more places should be like that. But um, this there, there's something a little aspect about this. I'm curious what you would think about this as as uh, uh, you know when you talk about history and and academic stuff. There's this thing comes up right now. There's this question that comes up all the time. Whenever news happens, it's like, okay, is this it? Is this the thing? Is it happening? There's there's this there's this sort of uh, this sort of two ideological camps. There's like the it's happening people and it's not happening people. Nothing ever happens, right? It's it's interesting to I was listening to someone uh, else talk about this earlier today, and I was listening to Arjun Templar, and he was sort of uh, like, "What would it like?" uh, This is an interesting lens to apply to like uh, to to the past history because like imagine if you're reading the news every day during world war ii like uh when when the british army escapes at dunkirk 
is that like a nothing ever happens moment or is it like okay this is a actual this this is a crucial bookmark along the 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 history of the war like what is like it's weird to uh i mean everyone can see a a clear trajectory but the way their lives have changed since especially like something like the 1970s or something uh, i mean was it happening when when gas went to went to three times the whatever price it went to in 1972 you could still buy a car you still drove to work everyone's still going to, doing their things but uh you know we have these huge systems it's not like a video game where the game just ends uh life will go on no matter what happens uh I, you know what i'm saying like, how do you decide, like, what is a significant event? Where, and do would people even recognize that if it happened? Well, okay. So I think that it would be relevant to mention. I You guys have probably heard of the number that, like, in the American Revolution, only 3% of the country participated. You know, mostly patriots and also some, some Tory loyalist, uh, royalist militias. And, like, it's... You know, in most times in history, I think that there's like there's a gradual shift over time to where you almost don't feel it. And there are maybe some certain large events like something like January 6th was a pretty big event because it was like, oh, wow, people actually broke in to the White House. That's crazy. And, you know, there's I, I'm not sure what I can say on YouTube, but obviously there's <laughs> um, but like and then there's and those are like big moments and those happen as part of the gradual shift and there's like there's bigger moments like you know something like the burning of the Reichstag and uh and Pearl Harbor or 9/11 I mean these are massive moments where you can tell exactly in the moment that there's a moment of change um so it's both and and they're punctuated by these these larger events I think so like culture culture is shared by definition and it and it's the the aggregate of the rules in your society but, but culture is individual people and individuals, people's perceptions, it's based on their nature plus nurture. So their biology plus their learned cultural experiences and, and people's learned cultural experiences, the language um, that they know, like uh, the, uh, you know, the hierarchy, their, their behavior, their governing of behavior. Each individual individual person has a has a slightly different perception from other people in their cultures. There's there's differences between different people. Some people are the same religion. They're a different race. Those carry different implications. Uh, maybe you're both white Catholics, but one's American, one's Canadian. One guy's from North Carolina, Connecticut. So people have overlapping similarities and overlapping differences. And and um, so there cultures really anytime that you establish that there's a culture that I establish that I'm from the Connecticut culture, but I'm also from the New England culture and I'm also from the American culture. And oh, yeah, my background is also Irish. There's all these different overlapping things and and any sort of distinction that you make towards like this is an Irish culture. This is an American culture. These are all themselves socially constructed ideas of what they are. Really, it's all just you know, DNA and um, and and your lived experiences in your in your brain. Uh, affecting how you act into the future. So as you have people age out over time um, and their perceptions uh, start to change, um, power waxes and wanes between certain individual groups of people, the, the culture will shift. And as the culture shifts, um, some of it's gradual and some of it is like in a moment because people have like their underlying belief systems, the ways that they evaluate information, what they've been taught, their their view of the world. 
that affects how they're going to view a situation. People in um, Connecticut are going to react differently to a situation than people in North Carolina and, and different people will react differently. But when, in, when a particular event happens, which through the lens of enough of a percentage of the population and the bigger the event, uh, the, the greater the effect and the larger amount of people that it affects, um, that can cause them to have a shift in understanding it's almost like an activatable hive mind trait. Like after 9-11 happens and, and there's an immediate shift in the culture, there's all this in, and, and, you know, people know that this is going to happen. This is scientifically verifiable that the approval rating of the president goes up to 90%. And some, suddenly everybody wants like Muslim people's heads on a stake. And there's people beating up Sikh people because they look like Muslims. And, you know, that didn't happen too often, but, but that is an event that at the extremities, it, it caused these, these horrible things. And, like the invasion of Iraq, like people lost their minds. And in retrospect, everyone's like, that was a terrible idea. But there was like this, this shift in the way that people evaluated, evaluated information. And when they, when an event happened, that was so great, it, you know, exploded outward. So um, I hope that made sense. Well, the, you, you used a great example. And like the, the original question, like, you know, how can you tell the original question is basically, how can you tell when it's happening? Like this, let's use the American Revolution as a good as an example because this is a great one. Uh, there's the after the British and Indian War, there's the Proclamation of 1763, where King George basically gives the entire Midwest to Quebec and says, "Okay, all right, colonies, you guys are st- you, this is your territory. You don't get to go past the Ohio River Valley." Like I'm sure that when King George signed that and when in Parliament that they, they didn't really think this is a big deal. It's just like. Uh, we're managing the possessions over in North America. No big deal. This was a huge deal to the colonists. So it, it says like, this is one of the things like you can say, this is where the road to the revolution began. And then you had like, you know, the uh, tea or, or tax and stamp taxes in the 16, uh, 1660s and seventies. And people didn't like it. And there were fights over it, but still, is it happening? I don't know. Maybe a, a small minority of colonists w- wanted to, do more than just complain on the other hand yes it's something like lexington and concord where people are there are shots there are militia shooting british regulars and british regulars shooting militiamen everybody knew at that moment yeah it's happening now this is the shot her around the world we know we know what happened but it, it had all been building from that from i mean from a long time before the french and indian war but from there that's when the the boiler began overloading, and when it finally gradually and then all at once, right? Yeah, and this is something that you know when historians about talking about the American Revolution love to do this thing where they say, well, actually, only ten percent of the colonists even supported even supported the cause of, of revolution. It's like that was true in like seventeen seventy four, but as right. soon as the bullets started fi- firing. It, everything changed overnight, and you know, roughly half wanted independence. And then eventually, by the end of the war, the Tories were they were such a small minority they were kicked. They self deported to Canada and have never been a political force in the United States since then. It was just it was right. never a big deal because this this shift happened. What, what I, how I link that to today is well, th- like I said, this border dispute that this dispute at the border that Texas is having with the federal government, this could just be another thing that, you know, it, 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 it is definitely an escalation when, when the governor says, I'm not going to obey the president of the United States and I will use physical force to stop him. Even if he doesn't do that, just saying you're going to do that is an escalation. You are ramping right. things up, but this could all be diffused tomorrow or 
some some 25 year old guy on one side or the other could accidentally squeeze the trigger like we think happened at the at, in the massacre of Boston and you are you were on the road to something that nobody expected and maybe a lot of people didn't even want. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Bogbeef. It does make me think though that um it's almost that modern politics has kind of uh, uh inoculated itself to this kind of like uh it's happening stuff because it seems like uh people with a strict sense of like what is like what is a significant event. Uh, they will usually place it around things that have that are formal, formal like uh, uh, you know uh, Germany declaring war on, on the United States, or or the the or, or Pearl Harbor is is illegally attacked, and all these kinds of things. Or or in the modern sense is the election. Uh, 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 one president's out and a new president is in. Where you know if when you uh, although you know that's kind of a laughable thing because uh, of course you know, looking back, like how much does reality change when there's different people in office? Uh, you know, it's usually almost nothing. Uh, and everyone can tell that now, but, but you, you know, like you, you can go back to the world war two thing. Uh, uh, you know, the United States was, was, was at war with Germany, like well before, uh, uh, you know, th- people started shooting and stuff. We, we were, we would like take our destroyers and like put them in between the mm-hmm. car. We were attacking their U-boats in the Atlantic in the undeclared war. We were literally firing <laughs> on them. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, that's hilarious. Uh, but you take all that. It's like okay, well, nothing's really happening unless um, you know. I guess in, in, the, in the today's news example, um, the governor of the governor of Texas would unfurl a scroll and and say, on this herefore date. The, the United States, I mean, the, the Texas is at war with the United States. Of course, in the, you know, when you look at, when was the last time we declared war on anything? It, none of this stuff, like, every, no one, uh, we have this, we, we have the massively industrial society, you know, 24-hour news cycle. You have a, a, a world where lawyers and, and consequences are kind of like, uh, are always uh, uh, the thing that everyone is always covering their ass. I don't know. Like what does happen formally anymore? Practically nothing. Uh, you know, someone goes to jail as ah, a plea deal. You know, do they get, do they get 20 years? No, they got 10. And then that's, that's seven years of, of, uh, of a uh, 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 parole and this and that. I mean, I don't know. It just seems like uh, uh, the, the, anyone waiting for for formal news of anything in today's world uh, uh, is, um, uh, of course, nothing ever happens formally. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a yeah. problem for them. What, what what has ever happened for like what has happened in the past twenty years formally between, let's say, the United States and China, or United States and communist country Cuba? Well, which, I guess they officially ended the embargo, which did have some real implications. With that food. does, yes. But that's the only thing. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, and this is a, a we have a bureau, you know, we have a empire that's like bureaucratic in nature. It's run by, I don't know, they, people argue whether they're merchants or priests, but whatever. They're they're not run by aristocrats. They're not run by military men, and 
formal stuff for them is bad. They don't. They want everything to be in the gray area so they can be so they can scheme. That's what they do. They're schemers. And this is you know moving stuff, move, like making declaring a move. Uh, put you, like, for one thing, you're at risk, and another thing, you have to admit what kind of power you have and what you're doing. Uh, it, for, just for one thing, if you've ever been in an office environment, you know how this works. Once you do something, declare something formally, you have responsibilities, and nobody wants that. They want everything to be. They want to have a meeting where everybody communally agrees on the course of action, so when it inevitably goes horribly wrong, that nobody in particular can be blamed for it. Yeah, they don't want they don't want responsibility. They don't want uh, yeah. yeah accountability. They want a diffusion of responsibility. That was I was funny. Yeah, it was. Then you what was it then? Um, well, there's an example in Herodotus when the Greeks are deciding whether they should go to war with Persia, and the Athenians have democracy, so they kind of talk themselves into this being a good idea to go to war with Persia compared to like, I'm crib, I'm cr- kind of uh, cribbing from Dan Carlin here. Apologies. The Spartans have a King and the King's like, oh, that sounds like a dumb idea. No, I'm not going to do that. But when he pitches it to the, to the, to the masses, the, the democratic masses in Athens, it's like you, you, it, everybody thinks this is a good idea. And nobody's ass is going to be on the line. If the fleet gets destroyed and the, and the Persian king is angry and wants to burn your city down, well, it's not your fault. It's everybody's fault. Whereas if you're the king of Sparta, that happens. That's your fault. You, somebody's going to chop your head off for that. This is like this yeah. is this is an inherent problem with our governments, our, our governmental system, like the governmental system with the people who have power today. They don't want to be. They don't want the buck to stop here. They don't want to be the guy. They want to be the guy behind the guy. Right. Right. And I think this is how a lot of like things that most people would consider just completely evil happen in the world, because there is a diffusion of responsibility and and people benefit from these systems. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. like the military industrial complex is is a real thing and it and it has incentives and and there's real reasons for it existing. Um, Like where I live, like my home county is economically a, a thing because of the nuclear submarine industry and just the fact that it's there instead of on the coast of it's on the coast of Connecticut instead of on the coast of um, on the coast of North Carolina or something speaks to the the power that Connecticut is able to muster to attract a, a naval submarine base, a federal one um, to its lands for one thing, but also like people's jobs are like tied up in that. And um you know, you talk to one of these people and, and I, as like an anti-war vet, it's like a, it's a thing for me, but like, you know, I talk to people and they, they work for the defense contractors and, and they don't have any inkling of a sense of responsibility for uh, them being a small part of this giant cog that uh, fires missiles with uh, freaking knives on them at children in Gaza. Uh <laughs> Sorry, but that is a thing. That, that, that that's a real thing. There's a diffusion of responsibility away from that. It's it's no one's responsibility, and the the norms have been established at an international level, and no one's asked. Like no one's going to there. There isn't anyone who can step in in the way of a social construct that's like going off on its own and uh, doing its own thing, and involves many many people that benefit from it. Well, that's ultimately what everybody wants in in life. Well, not everybody, but that's just sort of what the I don't know the base human desire is to just 
to get something for nothing. And that's what this to have power, but not have accountability to have authority, but not have responsibility. Everybody wants that. Well, I mean, not everybody. This is something that people want. And w- once you can do that, that's the worst possible system. It doesn't matter if you're a monarchy, democracy, whatever, clan, clan tribe. If, if people have power, but they don't have accountability, they don't have, they're not responsible to anything. They don't have any obligations. You're, you're effed because in, in, they couldn't rule well if they wanted to. Right. Right. Because it's, it's, it's just, it doesn't matter. And this is okay. So two things, corporations as, as social mm-hmm. constructs that like there is a responsibility that the structure is created, especially in publicly traded ones that they will try to make more money. So like, their interests and and their incentives based on the structure of these corporations are in line with the success of the corporation. So they're going to justify whatever they have to, to make money. Um, And if they don't, uh, someone else is going to, because the structure is set up to to hire people to do that. And legally the fiduciary responsibility is there. Um, So you have people doing awful things in corporations. uh, Like, you know, I have partial hearing loss because 3M um decided actively as a company like i guess you know there was a bunch of individual people that decided this but they knew that the earplugs were were bad but they calculated with um uh whatever those those math nerds that calculate the risk are actuaries uh that the lawsuit from it when they were inevitably found out would be less than replacing them (laughs) so they were just like ah whatever and now like a bunch of people have hearing loss and they've and that cost of treating that hearing loss and paying out disability payments is now felt by the federal government rather. And it's, and it's spread out throughout um, the entire population of the country. Um, and crap, I did have another example that I, I thought was good, but. This is kind of a field of what we were talking about, but like the, I, the, the protections that you know, like a, a limited liability corporation has by definition in America Yes, it was all kind of predicated on what you just said. That yeah, you're they're going to be doing this for they're going to have for you know fiduciary duties and blah blah blah. But you know more 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 recently, we've seen these corporations acting in ways that don't really benefit their shareholders, and they're acting in ways that are you know going by the by the law. They're like they're not doing what they're supposed to do, but they still have these legal protections. And if I were an enterprising, you know, let's say right wing politician, I would advocate maybe removing some of those protections, especially from these hostile corporations that are neither do, neither really effectively making money for their shareholders or holding up any obligations that they might have to the country that protects them both legally and physically. There's a, there's a great theory uh, that I like a lot. It comes from um, <clears throat> um, Brown university, uh, yeah. Professor uh, Mark Bly. Yeah. Uh, and his idea is this, uh, and it's, it, I'm sure he's not the only person that's thought of this, but um, uh, the idea goes like that basically, uh, this, this is fun to tie into things like cyclical history and stuff, uh, but basically, that it's that any system, especially complex systems, uh, that, that, w- w- in every sing, every complex system uh, has a, a sort of uh, uh, is going to have an end date where it gets figured out where it's like, 
uh, after a certain amount of time, people sort of uh, learn all the shortcuts uh, or they, they figure out things that, that uh, man, these sort of man-made systems are never foolproof. Nothing is. Uh, you know, it's kind of like uh, uh, think about antibiotics or whatever. Antibiotics are probably the, the biggest human invention ever. Uh, or at least the biggest one in the past 200 years or whatever. Uh, I mean, everyone knows there is an end date. I mean, so people become resistant to this, all this kind of thing. You can look at sports. Um, uh, I mean, basketball has an end date. I mean, people kind of figured out the game, and it's it's um, it, it's certainly not. It's not going to get. I mean, they could they could you can change the rules, whatever. Anyways, the idea part of the idea is that uh, any system needs to have like uh unless the rules are radically changed or it's or it's not uh, or it's not uh, uh defeated and replaced by something else uh all the time uh people are going to find out all every any kind of weird trick and the more especially the more complex it gets it gets easier to uh this thing that we see all over the modern world where you externalize costs and you um all, all this kind of stuff there's just a million ways for uh for for it's kind of like there's people right now in Africa that are exchanging uh, uh, like uh, uh, little handbooks that say, here's what you tell the, the here's what you, here's what you tell the people at the U.S. border. And we've we figured out because of, uh, you know, these guys did this 20 years ago or there's some lawyer telling them over here. Well, there's this weird exception for a refugee. Make sure you, you check this box and that box. And uh these things just get overwhelmed. Obviously, everyone in the world cannot live in the United States, but uh, you know the 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 hustle will go on for a while. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're doing their best to try, though. So, I don't think this is what you were talking about. So, I, I have two things. I have something to show you. Um, but like this might not be the same idea that you're talking about. But th there's this book called A Hacker's Mind, which I'll put in the description um, below. Uh, I love this book. It's I guess it's got 3.3 rating out of five on Audible, which is surprising. But uh, how the powerful bend society's rules and how to bend them back. Like it, he he has this concept called hacking, which is the idea that like you should um, or or that systems are like the rules are made to be a certain way, and then in response to those rules people change the way they act and they outsmart the system. And they start doing things. And one of the most famous examples, and I think this was in like Freakonomics was it's and this is like a behavioral economics thing was that in India, they, in, in a city in India, there were a bunch of uh, snakes. So they were paying people to catch the snakes, but then people were farming the snakes or, or rats or something. So they just had farms and then they had more rats than ever because people were farming them to give <laughs> the pelts to say that they'd killed them. Um, but one of you and I, I you guys are going to love this. Um, the oh, I'm sorry. But before I go into that bug, did you recognize th that book that I shared at all? A Hacker's Mind? No, no. I know. No, no, but I love the idea. I definitely I'll check that out. I, I really like, like the same idea. I really, I really like that kind of stuff. And in poker, you have a lot of uh, uh, this, this, this uh, kind of mindset. I mean, that's basically what uh, like every every sort of card count cheat like if you're a card count cheat you're you're someone who probably makes a living doing some other kind of gambling and you get a text that says hey uh there's a indian casino that is now paying a four times bonus on saturdays or something like that and just that little bit makes the math enough for you to uh, uh go in there and and 
and bankrupt this place. One of the most famous, the probably the, the richest gambler there is in the United States for the past hundred years, wherever is a, a, a guy who figured out that Vegas just incorrectly counted uh, how they did their. Um, uh, so we, when you bet on a, on a basketball game, you can uh, they the bet gets updated at halftime. So, uh, it, like, you know, you can bet that the Knicks are going to win this game or, or the Knicks are going to win by 10 or 20 or whatever. And uh, Vegas just basically they did not um, for a long time. Uh, more fouls get called at the end of a basketball game as opposed to the, the first half. And at the end of the basketball game, the, you're in, go into the bonus, whereas you get points for, for more fouls. Uh, and also, more importantly, the clock the clock gets stopped for all these different things. So, uh, statistically, uh, a basketball game has more points scored in the second half than the first half. Uh, Vegas just forgot to update their theorem for this for a long time, and this guy realized this, and he made just hundreds of millions of dollars until they they fixed this. That's amazing. how they fix it. Uh, they just they just changed their algorithm whatever to make it so that it accounted for a large they used to just take oh. the score and cut it directly in half whether it <laughs> rather than, than weighing it higher later you could I'll, I'll be, but this this affects so many other things like think one of the reasons why the university system is so huge is that uh i mean every all of these people uh, 60 70 years ago lots of independent thinkers people at their own house our own parents or grandparents were like Ah, okay, I know how to. I know how. Like, okay, we're in this America place, right? Uh, how do how, like, um, man, that guy over there has got a much nicer car than us, much nicer house. How can we win at this whole America game? I got it. We're gonna make our kids doctors and lawyers. That's what we're gonna do. We're gonna send our kids to the university. That's where they train the doctors and lawyers. They're going to become a doctor lawyer, and we're going to win at this game. Uh, and then, you know, everybody tried to do that. Now you live in, in it, it creates all this, this sort of bizarre system effects. Yeah. I want to hear there, about the, the the rat thing or whatever you're going with next because I'm, I'm intrigued. Oh, it, it was a separate thing. Be, before I do that, just an, another example. Bog, I'm, I just put a reminder in my planner. I'm going to send you some behavioral economics book recommendations because that's exactly the field that this is. Um, it's a right. bit of a Libby field, but I, I think that there's a number of books that you'd like. Um, the other thing is uh, Freakonomics, which is like the OG. I used to, I loved them when I was like like 10 years ago. It's like an NPR thing. Um, real lib over there. I, I don't listen anymore, but I li really liked his ideas. Um, he talked about like, they, they did this with names and this is hierarchical diffusion that I was talking about earlier. It, it, you know, it's from the top down, it's from the hierarchy down where, um, economic incentives and, and in other ways as well, but economic incentives, like people decide to go up and from a behavioral perspective, it's ec behavioral economics, economic perspective is, is not just necessarily money, but things like status and, and a bunch of other intangibles and like people you know, they, they try to move up in class, but the closer you are to the, to the number one of the elite, like whatever you consider it, the president billionaires, these people, the closer you are, the more of an understanding you have of it. And they demonstrated that names over time, names that were upper class in like the nineties or the eighties would then be middle-class in the nineties and then would be low class in the two thousands. They demonstrated this in a spectrum of um, income which I thought was really cool. And it's evidence of this hierarchical diffusion thing and, and the idea of 
being closer to it, making you more able to, uh, to expand on it. Um, but yeah, so the thing I wanted to tell you guys was like some of these companies, right? So these companies that are maybe not doing what would seem obviously is in their best interest, but th this has a lot to do with how absolutely destroyed our financial system is because there's the real economy, which is goods and services that are produced. And then there's this much larger derivatives-based market. And this derivatives-based market, while not being the real economy and, and being like, you know, this is the fake, but this is where the real money is because it's a much larger market because they're they're like bets on, on bets and they're bets on bets on what company is going to go up. They're not just simply buying stock. It, it, this isn't a system that is doing what it's supposed to. The idea of having common stock as a company is that you purchase part of a company they get money that they can invest to make more money. And if they're really good at making money, then they'll make more money and you will make money as the owner. Originally, it was all about dividends and all about, you know, there was some appreciation. Yes, but th there was, you know, it was real and it was tangible. And that is not true anymore. So, yes, while it may seem obvious that doing whatever they're doing is, um, is not what's best for them as a company, what's true is that based on the derivatives market, there are some incentives in place that have uh, done exactly what we're talking about here, which is they these forces have subverted the system from its original purpose, which is having these companies that will make money and they will continue to make money for the people that buy them. And the incentive structure naturally makes it reproduce because the money will go to the companies that are making more money by growing um, and being more efficient and, you know, making different uh, different innovations. But what's happened now and, uh, is that you have these companies like Vanguard and BlackRock that own such a large percentage of these companies, but they don't own them directly. They own them through index funds. And index funds, this is something that's going to be huge coming in the future, but index funds are like everything. Everybody in investing talks about index funds. They have for a long time. They've grown in popularity over and over until right now, which is instead of in the past, it was, you know, you buy companies, you buy mutual funds. Now it's just, you buy index funds. It's simple. It's a diffusion of risk. The market always goes up. It's always going to go up. It always has gone up, it, it, but like they convince people of this. So the, the amount of index funds that people have bought has become a huge portion of the market. So there's all this money, not just people's individual funds, but pension funds, they're all in index funds and it's a larger percentage. But what happens originally, what happened in the past is that when people owned companies or there were a bunch of individual mutual funds by a bunch of different regional banks and all these different competing forces, whereas now there's very few banks and you have these larger companies like BlackRock and Vanguard and all of these individual corporations, which have lessened and lessened in uh, number and variety and increased in size, and all these individual people, all these funds that go into index funds, they're not voting. That's key, is that there used to be an incentive for the people that owned it, the people that owned the companies to vote on the officers and um, of the company, like CEOs, the, uh, the C-suite of the company, that it that they would make money, they would vote on things in the company and their incentives were in line because they would make more money. But now all of those shares and in index funds, the voting rights are all to these massive companies that have trillions and trillions of dollars in organizations. So now those large corporations, they're not acting in support of those individual companies. They're acting in support of themselves and they're using the voting shares that they control to exert control 
over these companies. So now they're not acting in the interest of those individual companies. They're acting in the interest of themselves. And the interest of themselves is to homogenize the market and to have control over all these different companies. And it's something that they're doing successfully. And they're doing it without really telling anybody. Um, and nobody is talking about this. It's just not being talked about. But they control these companies. And when you see something like DEI, it's a complete ritualization and standardization of this idea that they should have control over all these companies because they're creating this specific ideology that they're putting out to all their companies and they're forcing them on it because they're the ones who have all the voting control over that company, over all of the companies now, because index funds can cover the entire world's market. So it's all of the companies. It's every single one. And additionally, the other thing that they're doing, they're extraordinarily involved they completely control the venture capital. So every single new company that comes up has its culture from the very beginning. If they want to get venture capital, if they want to grow to have any possibility of being a billion dollar company, they're going to be imbued from the very beginning. That corporate structure is going to be just, you, you can't, once a social construct is created, that character, you can't get rid of that without completely destroying it. So now all of that DEI is in every single new company that will ever grow into a billion dollar company that's been created in the last five years. And it's going to continue to be that way. The, and uh, that's what I have to say about it. This is the, this is the genesis I assume of the, we keep hearing so much about ESG scores and how the, you have to have a certain ESG score to, I guess in this case, to get funding for venture capital for whatever they use this ESG test or whatever as a way to control, like have control over, Damn, it sounds like I, I'd never heard it described this way, but basically every major corporation. It's yeah. And it's 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 all of them. They control all of them, dude. Like it's not it's it's like the East India Company, but it's the it's the Earth Company. There's and there's a, a couple of them, but but there is a few of them and they all think the same way because of, again, hierarchical diffusion. There there's a. um <clears throat> So diversity inclusion, uh, it has a lot of different layers to what it means, especially it's important on on who you are. If you're a private citizen, uh, some of the things I'm about to talk about may, may not be uh, as like uh, that's my, uh, of being that's your direct experience. If you it's just like, oh, diversity, that's the people that sort of telling my son in school that he's a evil colonizer or whatever. I get it. And that's really all that, that that's going to that, that's going to matter to you. However. Uh, there are a lot of different ways this functions. And one thing, uh, if people want to see this or just here's my, here's my bibliography here. Uh, who, who's the guy's channel where, uh, on YouTube, we went on a show. He, uh, uh, Benjamin Boyce, Benjamin Boyce. Okay. So Benjamin Boyce was this guy that was, uh, uh attending school at Evergreen college when they had that big famous, uh, uh, diversity flip out or whatever. And, uh, there's something that he kind of documented over time. And you could see like, look, I'm not saying this is the sum of all like what, what diversity and woke stuff is, but you can look at, so you start out in a situation where there was this guy that got hired as a, uh, as a administrator for the school and the average, the, the, the average tenure for an administrator at uh, Evergreen college was less than three years because Evergreen was this very unique college. It was set up for, for, uh, by idealistic people. And they were like, okay, we're going to make a college where the professors have all the power. We're, we're like, we're, they were tired of uh, apparently in, in uh, outside of this uh, 
in universities, you've had an increasingly large uh, uh, administration. More and more people are, are the administrators and the professors have less and less power over time. So what we're going to do is, is we're going to have a bare minimum administration. We have just a couple people. And instead, the administration will be done by the professors. What will happen it's is a co-op, like, basically. They try to do a co- the college as a co-op. Right. It sounds like a good idea to me, and I know it's going to go horribly wrong because I know what it is, but it it, sounds like a good idea. It was a good idea. It worked until. Yeah. And so people like uh, you can tell you can sort of um, there's a couple of people that got famous from this. the I mean, the result, there was a lot of very good results from this. So basically what would happen is when on Joe Rogan was at this place, right? Weinstein. Yeah. Yeah. Dark Horse. I like him. Yeah, and so like, uh, so what you would do is basically like two, like every every third year, you would not be a professor, and you would go work in administration. By doing this, the professors could muscle out any kind of administration, and because of this, uh, they like uh, you could go to you could do a four year program at Evergreen and. Those professors, since the professors had total control, you didn't go take a bunch of like, uh, 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 like BS elected, like a humane, like you didn't do like two years of stupid classes you didn't want to take. Like you could, like if you wanted to, to work in in film or whatever, you just you were you worked with film people all four years. That's awesome. And, yes. And people got like, it was a, from what I understand, you got a better, you basically, you got like uh, an extra two years of graduate school or whatever at these sort of uh, uh, important, like the, you know, this is, this was, in other words, this was especially effective if you wanted to do something like, uh, I want that, that was like, uh, I don't know, if you just wanted a random degree in, in, you just wanted a piece of paper. Who cares? But if you wanted like real specialized knowledge and from uh, that that was hard to get, that normally people had to go to uh, graduate school and stuff, this was an awesome deal. It was kind of the way that academia worked in the, the in the the distant distant past, like you know, right nineteenth century. This is really how academia would have worked. But they were doing this into the twenty first century, Evergreen, not entirely, but the way he described it. Tell them what happened with the president okay so george bridges gets elected and he's a very smart i mean he he gets uh, he gets appointed as the president and he's the president of a school where the president has no power and and they they change him out like uh like like a bed sheets like uh, so it's, you're not going to be the president there very long and he anyways he gives this great speech at the very beginning where he's like uh yeah, I'm going to be the last, I'm going to be the last president that, that's hired for at Evergreen. <laughs> he like, <laughs> like he gave like this, this like a uh, sort of Stalin-esque speech. It's like, uh, yeah, I'm going to take this, this place. I mean, he's a very driven guy. Uh, and here, so basically what he does is all those sort of diversity freakouts and stuff were, were stoked by him. Uh, like the, you know, one of the big news that came out, there was like, they took the pre they took uh, a university administrator hostage, which they did. They took him hostage and he let them do that because, uh, he wanted to create this, this crazy, insane environment. And by doing this, cause, uh, one thing you'll, you might think about like, uh, okay. If they're, if, if all the professors are in charge, Wait a minute. Where's the diversity department? Well, there, 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 there might be one, but they don't have any power because that's administration. But that's the people. Th- those aren't professors. Those are people like like presidents and and stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? 
And a regular, yeah. a regular university, the diversity department is administration. So what he did was he caused this crazy freakouts, and it brings this, it brought this huge temperature to the situation. And then he, uh, he said, okay, so you know we have this big problem with all these sort of uh, 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 these events. What we're going to do to get control of this is. I'm gonna. Uh, we're gonna appoint a a diversity inclusion office, and this office will have sort of final say over anything that happens at at uh, at, at at Evergreen because because um, diversity and inclusion is so important, so vital. Right. Do this. That's the only people that could sort of tell like a crazy, like let's say some crazy rampaging uh, native speaker was like uh, taking something hostage or whatever. Who could tell them to stop? Well, I guess the diversity inclusion department. So I'm trying to sell it as something that's like where you could see like, oh, well, I could see that, I guess. So anyways, uh, and, and I guess what happens. Right. And so what he slowly he, ha- what he, he, asked, he asked if he can guess what happens. Yeah, go, go for it. Yeah, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, unless you want to say, I mean, I, I no, just no, think no, it's no, 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 yes. no, Sorry, yeah, I didn't hear you. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, okay, yeah. I mean, I think what's going to happen is he created a crisis, and now he's going to use it to create a DEI office, but since he's the president, he gets to pick who's in the DEI office, and obviously they say that, oh, what they have to do is appoint a permanent president, and then he is reigned as the chancellor of Evergreen College. That's exactly what happened. Good yeah, okay. I mean, it wasn't formally like you're going to be the permanent president, but yeah, he added this layer over top of the existing power structure that, that I won't say he controlled, but like his people controlled. Like it was, he, I'm sure he, he is definitely a true believer in this stuff, but their religion took this over. And he's like, he was like, for the time that he was there, he was the Pope. Yeah, he, he, he had formal. So what he did was, uh, so he made a diversity inclusion office, gave them authority over everything. So that was the new king, and then he made himself his layer above the diversity office, and that was it. And yeah. they let it happen because the diversity office was then the legitimate source of power. But mm-hmm. he's the one who legitimized it, so he legitimized himself, and he had his own clients in the uh, diversity office. Yeah, like Stalin wasn't the president. Stalin was mostly like the secretary and had these sort of uh, 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 he was Stalin was never like the 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 abs never had like the supreme re- leader official position in um in Russia, but he was above whoever was sitting down there. It, it is important you know. to note that he did not become the like president for life of the college. He eventually, after a couple of years, had to he, he resigned, but after like the college enrollment shrunk by half and. They lost a, a, a load of money. So, like, he didn't successfully become Stalin. He didn't die in office. But he upended right. the power structure and permanently changed the school for the worse. Like, they don't operate the same. Yeah, he destroyed he what, was, what was special about the school. And I, I want to add, you know, the thing where he, you know, he was under siege by these really angry people of color and people who have sexual identities, whatever. Like that is that wasn't a new strategy that happened during the civil rights movement in the 60s. You had university professors being take quote unquote taken hostage by you know uh, black radicals and stuff. And like those guys were on the same team. They weren't being held hostage. They were they were part of the deal. Like that was and I've, I've mentioned it before. It's I can't take credit for the phrase, but power petitioning itself. And that's what George Bridges did, and that's what they did during the civil civil rights act. And this is what these people are really good at. You, you don't have the formal power yet, but what you do is you get some a lonely person who's been oppressed and sad, and they, please, sir, could you 
become a ruthless tyrant on my behalf. And you're like, well, I would, I would, I, I, I don't want to do it, but I guess I'll have to, you know, for your benefit. George Bridges, he didn't want to do all that stuff. He didn't want to destroy Evergreen, but he just had to do it because, you know, big fat Naima Lowe asked him to. And this is, this is always how this works. It was, it was funny for how he, uh, a lot of those people that he was sort of playing, they, you could like, uh, they thought that they were actually in charge there. They didn't realize that he was just sort of using them as a, as a pawn. Uh, by the way, like as, genius. as it sits today, uh, their enrollment in, uh, 2000, their enrollment went from the four thousands to the low two thousands. In, in a span of like in, a, in the span of, of his tenure and they they got rid of like everything that made evergreen special like in terms of uh it was a public university they got that had that that's that super special uh uh way it was designed or whatever that's all gone now it's all it's just Shutter. it's just some it's just another college now well that sucks <laughs> that sucks man um yeah, so I got two things on this, man. There's a, I, a perfect example of this. You know, I was a Marine and um, I deployed on a naval ship. And uh, it's still true that on naval ships, this is just a, this is a holdover from when this was a thing. But the officer berthings, the officer place, well, their staterooms, where the officers live is on the top decks of the ship. The middle decks have the Marines. The lower decks have the sailors. And the reason for that is because there was a patronage system with the Marines where the Marines were paid more, um, given slightly nicer stuff. They, they were essentially the, the Praetorian guard of that ship. And they were physically between the sailors and the officers in the case <laughs> of a mutiny because the Marines are going to be loyal to the officers because that's who's giving them the nicer. And that's a very direct version of this. Almost have yeah. kind of like a, well, the middleman minority in there a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and that's the other one, right? Like you have your, it, it's always like the white man's favorite minority that gets put in. And, and sometimes they're a, they're a willful, um, they're a willful participant in it because it, it benefits them as well. Um, so like, you know, this just happened, uh, this week they're, they're starting to, there was a new federal ruling related to some, uh, you know, respect to indigenous artifacts, and indigenous peoples and the federal government decided that that they're now this is actually happening they're closing down um displays at at smithsonian museums and other federal museums uh which are the best in the world i mean like i i was yelling about this earlier on twitter because legitimately like i hate new york city i hate the city um and there was one day where i went to new york city specifically to go to the museum of natural history which has like this huge collection of indigenous art, which is like my favorite stuff, indigenous art and history and material culture, all of it. And like I spent open to close. I was in this museum looking at this stuff and I, I went to goddamn New York City for this. I, I Nothing makes me go to New York City except for museums and uh, comedy. But like it was now what's going to happen is that there needs to be um, a tribe needs to a tribe or a nation needs to give their permission. But it, how this happens in practice is that it's only federally recognized tribes. So there are a lot of tribes and nations that aren't federally recognized, that there isn't enough evidence of their existence as a people for them to be recognized by the federal government. So number one, those groups have no representation. And those are the weaker ones. Those are the ones that weren't in positions of power, um, which, you know, is fine. But 
And it also means that the structures that are recognized by the, like, I mean, the larger state, these are, these Indian reservations are essentially vassal states of the United States, semi-autonomous vassal states. And they, the government that has been put in place, like in a lot of ways by this higher federal structure is instructing, like it, they have their people in place in these places in a lot of way, ways. And, and they're just, they're doing their bidding um, to an extreme end and it sucks. And same, same week that they take down Jefferson. Well, like the, what, so what happens if the tribe decides they don't give their permission? What happens then? Well, I, then they, then it can't be displayed. And I, I assume it, it just, <laughs> I assume a lot of this stuff can be taken back from the Smithsonian's. I assume that, but like, dude, the, the Smithsonian records, they have so much stuff. They have like tons and tons of stuff in warehouses. They lose it all the time. There's, there's like priceless ends and ends of culture just sitting in boxes that no one's opened in 85 years. It's like the, um, it's like the Minnesota flag thing that just happened where they changed their state flag and they said, we don't like the the, in, the Indian on the horse that's on our state flag. We think that's racist, so we're going to change it. So they just remove the Indian from the flag. And yeah. It's like, that's what you're doing with this stuff. You're taking these artifacts out of the museum and, okay, then we're Orlando not going to... Yeah, or the or Aunt Jemima. We're just we're just not going to learn about your tribe anymore. You're just going to vanish into the ether of history. Like, okay, Only I white guess. people are allowed on products, Myrick. Yeah, I mean, take your oats, dude, and the, the the chick on the sunscreen with her ass hanging out. Mrs. Butterworth is still going strong, but Aunt Jemima got canceled. This yeah. this stuff is uh uh so you know the ur example of this kind of thing is uh, uh the British Museum and uh stuff from egypt right so uh what people don't want to hear is is there's a lot of weird people who uh they want the british museum to give all their stuff back to uh these play these people in third world countries whereas in where it there these things are not valued all this stuff is just going to be sold on the market that's 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 what happened uh that's what's always happened um they, they don't have they don't have the infrastructure to it's not like if you give if you give these things if you give like all these egyptian artifacts back to uh egypt they're just going to be sold off to chinese investors and things like that uh yeah yeah and it's what it, I, I had written about this thing on Twitter like last week where uh, there was like ISIS going around and, you know, everybody who funded ISIS. Look up who who funded ISIS and controlled ISIS. I'm not allowed to say it, but I hope you all know. Um, and they just, you know, they tortured this archaeologist for a month and he wouldn't give up the location of these uh, Roman artifacts. Was that Petra? Um, no, no, that's in Jordan. They never got over there. I've, I've been there, actually. That That was a cool place. But no, it was a. It was a different one. Uh, Pe no, Petra is uh, pre-Roman. It's um, it's like four or five thousand years old, I think. Oh yeah, Petra's southeast of Israel, isn't it? That's isn't that like in the uh, Saudi Arabia? Or, it's in it, Jordan, I think. It, gotcha, gotcha. I think You'd it's be north. You've been there. <laughs> well, I, I couldn't locate it on a map. I, th I think it's north of uh, Lebanon. It's it's in it's it's like uh, yeah, we'll look at a map. That, rem that reminds me of um there's a uh i i like uh i i, I like look at the mafia a lot especially because it's it's it kind of does all this patrons kind of stuff but um uh 
the Boston Mafia, and I don't know that this sounds like something where the, the, the I don't know if other people know this because I know this from Mafia stuff, but there, there should be some kind of like documentary or something. This is the kind of thing that people would find super interesting. Sorry, go ahead and finish this. I was just trying to hold it while you talk. No, yeah, I appreciate it. it. Yeah, yeah. No, that's it. You, you were more right, Merrick. It's like east of uh, Israel. But yeah, I was came in right here. Jordan's the best, man. I mean, people don't know the geography of this place. They really don't. <laughs> I just Googled it. Oh, yeah. I, it was Hatra that the ISIS destroyed wow. their their, I, I, their artifacts. Uh, yeah, so the, the, he, he, he like, they torched him for like a month, right? Yeah, that's that's what it said. Um, yeah, it's pretty awful. He didn't give it up, and then I guess they found the artifacts anyway. The stuff about the British Museum is so fake because uh, and like, I'm not the first person to point this out, but a lot of that stuff, would, the reason that the British have it is because they went into Egypt, and nobody there cared about the stuff that was there. So right. they were able to just cart it off, and no, no, like, people weren't mad that they were taking the Rosetta Stone. Like The Rosetta Stone was just a rock to the people. Living. And Did that, they find it? Yeah. It was, it was like, it was in, in a wall. People, somebody had used it as a, a brick in the wall. And the British right. found it and said, hey, or a French, oh. actually, it might have been a French, a French found it and said, like, hey, wait a second, that looks important. Like, there's a lot of stuff that's like oh. this that wouldn't, wouldn't matter. Like, you could make the argument that picking up Indian arrowheads is a, is a, a hate crime or whatever, but like. I got in an argument with an archaeologist about that last week. It was a <laughs> Really? Over on anthropology Twitter, we were we were at war with each other. Like we know we we have like mutuals, and she was like quote tweeting me, telling people to unfollow me. What what, what is the basis for her to to, to believe that? Like they, they, these aren't like you're not digging up graves. These are like something that they were tools that people use. Dude, <laughs> yeah. So her argument is that so so here's the thing: like things don't have value to archaeology when they're not in their archaeological context so like if you were if there was a site or, or and this has happened in the past before there were like archaeological methods like it, it, there were locations where they were disrupted and people took all the stuff out of it and then the stuff's not in its context you didn't find it where it lied so you don't understand the context in which everything was like you you can't find a single trash heap and then it, it gets into very technical archaeological stuff that really only the academics care about but it is the basis of our larger understandings in aggregate of a bunch of these different things. So it is important. But those arrowheads are found everywhere. You can find them in streams. And mm -hmm. like this ideological, puritanical, brown professor is arguing with my dumbass on Twitter. And I have more followers than her, which <laughs> you know, doesn't really matter. She it still does. has the credentials. Yeah, right. It does. It will. It does. In in the sense, like in our world, it matters more. Right. Because that's how we just determine credibility. But they don't care. They, well, no to, one to cares them, what they say credible. is the thing. Like nobody listens to them, really. Like they but they like, they do get paid, which does matter. I will say that Look, the I, Arrowhead thing is weird because that's like if you found on my property a 30 six casing, you're like, don't touch that. That's a sacred American artifact. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's dumb. It's dumb. Yeah. 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 Um, But like. The, the the thing is, though, is that she's a professor at Brown and she or, or maybe she's a Ph.D. student, but still, uh, no, I think she, I think she was a professor um, and she she has me blocked now. So whatever um, she is teaching Ivy League kids who are in these networks that then go into these positions. They're, they're at the top of this hierarchy of this hierarchical diffusion of these ideas. So they have to be the most pure. So they have to go out on Twitter and it doesn't matter if they're getting yelled at by me and 7,000 of my friends. It, it doesn't matter. 
it's like because they are still correct and they're showing their purity. They're showing, oh, my God, I'm virtuous signaling. I am so pure in my commitment to academics and to the hierarchy that I believe in so, so much, the social construct of the university system, that that she was literally telling me that you do not get to dis- you don't get to own what's on your private property that it's the property of the state and oh i'm the person who is from the state or she's from connections mm-hmm. to the state because of her position that i'm the one who should come and take it i have to take it i'm the i'm the endowed person for this so literally arrowheads that you would find on your property she thinks that you're doing some that she called that looting literally to me and other people called it looting to pick up arrowheads on your own property and and mocked my commitment to anthropology because I had this idea. I, I swear <laughs> to God, this is a conversation I had last week. It's the same. It's the same. Sorry, go ahead, Bobby. That's funny. Uh, uh, well, I'm going to finish that story about. Uh, so, yeah, I'm uh, sorry, Bog. I didn't. I, I meant to get right. No, into that. no, no. I interrupted in the middle of that. So, uh, anyway, so you have uh, the the Boston Mafia. You have the uh, there was this guy Bobby Donati from the Patriarca family, and I'm I'm using these words to try to uh, be like. Uh, this these this is not Al Capone, right? So these these are uh, knucklehead criminals, and uh, they were paid to go into the Boston Museum uh, to get some jewels. And while they were in there, they they were like, "Hey, look, those are some paintings. Uh, let's load them up." And uh, this this was in 1990. These guys are, you know they're not educated guys. They're uh, knuckleheads or people that are normally like selling drugs and stuff like that. These are the kind of people. And so uh, uh, Bobby Donati and a couple of guys from the, the, the Boston mafia, they just grabbed some paintings, what they thought were likely some paintings. In fact, it was, they did the biggest art heist in like world history. Right. So there were five, three to five, but I think it was, let me see. Uh, uh, Okay, three original Rembrandts, three original Rembrandts. Uh, uh, I mean, two of these are old paintings. One of them was a rem- was a uh, was a self portrait on like charcoal pencil, whatever. Uh, about five uh, Degas, uh, an original Manet, uh, uh, Manet or whatever. Uh, a two thousand year old beautiful Chinese vase, uh, a French imperial eagle from uh, uh, Napoleon's uh, Napoleon's army. Wow. Uh, so this stuff is like, so, you know, how, how, how much, you know, how much it was, was like five original Rembrandts worth. So this stuff is worth like, a, you know, about 500 million is what it's been estimated at. And so you have this crazy situation happen. So, the, you know, the, the, the federal government and lots and lots of other people immediately got involved and they were like, look. And, and, you know, the mob, like, you know, they, they shut down the mob is the mob does crime every day. Right. So they treated it like other crimes They're like, hey, you know, the, you know, they we're not testifying all this kind of stuff. And the government was like, look, we don't care about you anymore. Like, we'll sign any deal. Please just tell us where this is. This is not like any this is not like you knocked over a bank like everyone in the world wants to be able to wants these Rembrandts in, in the hands of. Uh, civilization again and they they were just willing to they were telling these guys look we'll do anything we'll sign anything we'll we'll in fact give you more money we'll get they they offered them 10 million dollars they said just please just stop this just tell us where this is uh and the guy ended up getting whacked uh 
before uh, uh for a, an unrelated thing uh because <laughs> you know a guy gets the guy gets uh, i had to look it up but you know he got he got killed in some kind of drug deal or something and now no one knows where this stuff is and <laughs> nobody has any clue i mean so a lot of the guys in the uh in all those guys that were in the mafia at that time uh they they will they you know they they've told the authorities everything they know on this because they've been well they've been told like and they've realized like look like we get it you're criminals and stuff but this is different we just really really want these rembrandts back and um they've told them everything they think that the paintings are buried under a concrete slab in florida for some reason <laughs> i know why mm, go ahead well, okay. I, uh, wait, were you done? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So this is something that I've heard about before. There was actually a problem after this. Um, some criminals, and, and this is somewhat true, they're being used as insurance. They're a get-out-of-jail-free card. And, and it's actually happened from this. I think there have been other art heists because criminals then think that they can get out of certain crimes by having these art pieces. They created an incentive structure. <laughs> yeah yeah and, and and people like 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 people there people honestly would have done have let them go from anything to get those rembrandts back i, I know mean, and they probably still will is the thing so like, somebody eventually can be like i got this i'll show you where that is if you let me get off for beating my so like wife garlic jimmy pardo or whatever was the last guy who knew where the where this vault was that contains the priceless paintings and somebody whacked him over like i i don't know a book and keep me look that's that those are my people man that is boston irish that's all me those rich people oh that's Let's true you can say boston mob I, I apologize it would have been it wouldn't be it would have been like uh potato jimmy o'hare <laughs> well there was some a dudes drunk on whiskey just stumbled in grabbed a couple rembrandts between beating each other uh <laughs> go ahead bug yeah it's unclear whether i mean so uh i think that the um that the italians actually took it it's not for sure oh yeah but but the irish the the, the irish were definitely involved in this uh it was uh i don't know guys from the dorchester neighborhood and stuff like that but um i mean i'm i'm aware like this is a thing we know about new england because it's like it's it's mm -hmm. our you know it's our yeah so the, i was so happy when you started talking about it because i i knew it <laughs> yeah and uh one of the rembrandts the it's called a lady and gentleman in black is incredible i mean it's it's an incredible painting i mean you could i mean it is a uh it's an incredible painting and literally it's it's just it's just gone it's 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 under some it's under some Guido's pool in 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 in, uh, in Florida now. You know? Or he could have he could have sold it to somebody. Like imagine if you were a private collector, there would be nothing cooler than owning like the the own the only Rembrandt of this thing, and it's stolen. That would be a really cool thing to own. A lot of times Yo, that probably happens too. There's definitely some chic in Saudi Arabia <laughs> that has some hidden bedroom. And he invited out like Mark Wahlberg out over there, and he was like, "Hey man, you want to see something?" It's like yeah, I got he, fucking something. Back he's got here. a cheetah on a leash already, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's like, you, you know what's cooler than a cheetah on a leash? Rembrandt's been missing from Boston for forty years. <laughs> this in this dude's bunker. Um, uh, but one person, there's probably something like that. Sorry, what, go ahead. What, one of the one of the people that questioned said that uh, uh, Whitey Bulger had. 
uh, had the paintings and uh, gave them to the IRA. <laughs> <laughs> to, Hell to... yeah, brother. That is <laughs> That's my people. <laughs> Oh God! Well, I mean, I mean, like these paintings were worth enough. Like, uh, you know, if you're you're in the you're in the troubles, you're in the you're in this guerrilla war. Uh, five hundred yeah. million is enough to turn the tide of a war. Oh, a yeah. small war like that, absolutely. There was a lot of money going from. There was a lot of money coming from New England, from like, from from Catholics to the the war effort there. Oh yeah, yeah. The British were very aware of that. Yeah, well, that's what happens when you commit a genocide and you create a diaspora of four million pissed off drunk people in in a in another country, and they they like take over the entire population of the area, so it's just all of them. So then you're like a fourth generation full blooded Irish person, and even into the twentieth twenty first century, you're still pissed off about a genocide based on potatoes. I guess um, I want to ask what your opinion on the Finians was, huh? <laughs> No, you don't. I actually, it, it's funny. I, I'm recording this episode with you guys. Um, and uh, so I'm relaunching the show and I, I'm putting a few on the back burner and I'm going to release them. I'm, I'm getting ahead. The first release, the 50th episode is uh, is with, and, and this is already released at this point, is with, a, it was with an Irish nationalist from Northern Ireland. Um, which, you know, it, it it's a little bit different of a, of a conversation, but it's uh, it's a really good one. Um, do you have anything else to say on that bog? Mm, no, not really. It's it's, oh, a, yeah. it's it's a I mean it's a it's one it's a fun story to look at because uh there's still like a I don't know what the reward is. It's the largest reward that's offered by uh by non-state actors. Like like you know outside of giving you know giving America the location of you know who El Chapo or something like that uh it, uh you know if you're a sort of private detective in your house you could make 20 million if you could track down uh where those Rembrandts are um, oh my god national treasure really... moment for us guys yeah it's it, it says the the offer is still at 10 million but is this the one you were talking about because this is really nice no no that's another one that is that is that's this that's the other room i was thinking of the uh but yeah that is uh it's it's a, a lady a lady and a gentleman in black that here uh maybe it's not on this list oh okay i'll just google it from here sorry did you say something merrick no i was just looking at the i was looking at your screen <laughs> oh, yeah, okay this one. Oh, okay uh, that is very 17th century dutch i'm i'm really uh you know that's another new england thing i'm i'm very uh into the painting or into the uh like landscape naval stuff look at that i don't think i can zoom in more it's one of these weird art websites they don't like let you look at it right but this is this is it <laughs> some it's in like the freaking ira heads office or some or some guido's den <laughs> They're smoking cigars, playing playing cards, and like the Rembrandt's hanging on the back wall. Uh, in Na New Jersey, Napoleon put um, God, what's the most famous painting in the world? Uh, Mona Lisa. Yeah, Napoleon put the Mona Lisa in his bathroom. <laughs> oh my god, dude, that's a crazy flex. I love that. <laughs> All right, well. 
we're at like two hours and seven minutes. I, I got no format for this yet, um, but that feels like a, a good enough time um, and a good stopping point since we were talking about art thieveries at the end and that came to a close. So you guys have anything else to say on that? You have anything else to say on any other topic? And uh, if not, plug whatever. I'll show us again. Good old boys. Patreon.com slash good old boys with a Z. Listen, we put out something at least one, most time at least once a week. Talk about history, talk about stuff like this. We, I love to talk about the 19th century. I'll, I'll go on and on about that for, for hours. And as always, patronage. Current events. Yeah. Most people who do this kind of stuff uh, don't do current events. We do current events. We read the news once a week. Um, it's funny. It's a different. It's a different muscle group. I mean, you know that better than anybody, Samuel. It's it's like you, it, it's it. There's things that link it together, but it's totally different when you research something and you're talking about it in depth versus when you're just talking about what dumb Joe Biden did yesterday. And that's and that's good old boys radio live on Twitch Tuesday nights at 9 p.m. and and probably about half the time you can find me in the comments hanging out. So, <laughs> you know, look for that. Yeah. Hell yeah.